Live from the Battleborn Broadcast Center, it's Cofield and Company. You what? need to wash your hands after you use the restroom. Yes. With Steve Cofield. I like messing with him, but he's got the perfect face for radio. <laughs> Adam Candy. This is gotcha journalism. But you know what? They're not going to gotch me. It's time for Cofield and Company on ESPN Las Vegas. All right, here we go on a Wednesday. Cofield and Company. Adam Candy is the company. Cofield here on the Finley Toyota Studios with Ari. Lots of football to get to. I'm not sure how much Raiders we're going to get to. We are going to talk to former NFL head coach. Rick Venturi, he's the color voice for the Colts. We'll talk to him later in the hour about the wacky Colts situation with Colts and Raiders on deck this weekend. What a story, right? A crazier organization than the Raiders, and the Raiders are pretty crazy right now, especially with the way the season's gone and the record so far. Candy, how you doing, buddy? Oh, man, let's get going. Big day. Big, big day. It is a big day. Let's get to it. It's the three on Cofield and Company. So, Candy, we all followed the election yesterday. I assume you did. I saw a lot of people say, I'm tired of this. I'm going to sleep. Did you go to sleep? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I went to sleep only because we knew right from the jump we wouldn't know everything that was going to be an answer uh, in Nevada's super tight election. So I think we have the result in for the governor. We're going to have a change in the uh, office of governor And I wanted to come in today and talk about what will happen next year with a new governor when it comes to Las Vegas sports. Do you believe there's going to be some major changes? Because there's a lot of stuff on the way, potentially, with sports in Vegas. And the governor does have a hand in it. The uh, soon-to-be former governor, Steve Sisolak, had a major hand in many different sports stories and organizations and funding and votes and all that stuff. What do you think changes? First of all, I'm going to take a hard left on the certainty of Lombardo winning this race based on everything that's uh, still Uh-oh. out there Uh-oh. to to be done. Uh-oh. But that being said, uh, whatever governor is in place is in large part kind of managing a ship that's already full steam ahead in the direction that's going, right? I mean, the progress made during the last administration was enormous in terms of sports, right? Uh, we've got a Super Bowl coming to town. That's something that needs to be managed, right? We've got F1 coming to town, but a lot of these are just things that are a matter of continuing the momentum that's already there. Wait, you don't think the next governor will have an effect on the potential of two NBA arenas being built, NBA expansion, MLS could come to town, and the lingering Oakland A's issue in Oakland, which I don't believe is a a Vegas issue, but could be soon if the A's turn their attention. By the way, all of baseball is here in town with the uh, GM meetings. Uh, Oakland could really turn its eye on Vegas. They still haven't named a site that they're interested in, which is funny. Uh, We've been dragged down that path. You don't think the next governor is going to have a say or have some influence on all these sports Looking at Vegas? The A's in part, sure. I mean, you you certainly could have the governor uh, changing the tune that Sisolak has had on the idea of public money not being used for that stadium, but it still takes a whole lot more than a governor to be able to get that done. And I think you have a legislature that had a unique set of circumstances in place to get the Raiders stadium accomplished. And when it comes to the NBA, the, the funding is in place. I mean, they've When they talk specifically about the one that's uh, going to be built the south of the Strip, that one is already there, and apparently uh, the 
<laughs> the on again, off again, times 10 wet and wild site one uh, from Jackie Robinson also has its funding in place. So, look, a lot of this is already there to be had. Could the A situation get a boost? Sure, but it has a whole lot uh, more distance to climb than it would appear from just a change at the top. So it was just two days ago. Headline, RJ, Sisolak, county officials, no tax money for A's ballpark. So that's Sisolak's stance. Do you think Joe Lombardo will have a different stance? No, I think Steve Sisolak has been as friendly to pro sports as any governor we've ever seen. I mean, think back to when Steve Sisolak was on the county commission and he was the point person for everything that was going on with the Raiders stadium. I, I mean, I could tell you as a reporter covering it, nobody knew what was going on more than Steve Sislak when it came to getting that stadium built. And he uh, was instrumental in getting a number of other things done as he was not shy and touting during his advertising during the campaign. So no, I, I think that what's going to make fiscal sense for Nevada is certainly not something that is going to change. And if you want to talk about receptive to more taxes or using tax money, that's certainly not what Lombardo campaigned on. Well, that was my next question. If you voted for the soon-to-be Governor Lombardo, and I have no idea who you voted for, Candy, would you want him to earmark money, public money? You know, two, three, four hundred million dollars. I think the, isn't the major league behind the scenes is behind the scenes. Isn't the major league minimum about two fifty that needs to be contributed publicly to a stadium for a team to move to a market? Let's think about the franchise that we're talking about as well with the Oakland A's. This is not a franchise that is replete with cash. They're going to be looking for the absolute best deal they can get anywhere. It's going to take a lot more than that. And remember that to build Allegiant Stadium, it took $750 million in tax money, and that had to be attached to a massive expansion for the Las Vegas Convention Center that was the carrot for a lot of legislators, like uh, our friend Justin Watkins, who we'll talk to you later, knows that that's the way that it went down. So now I, I I would not be uh, I would not be in favor of any more tax money. I wasn't in favor of it at the time that it happened. I, I don't think that that's the most effective use of that kind of tax money in the state of Nevada, a state with massive public infrastructure issues in a number of different ways. So Sisolak was certainly sports centric, right? Embraced sports. Hell, he ran one of his election commercials. Really focusing on that, right? Talking about all the sports he brought to Nevada. Do you have a wish? Do you have a wish list? Do you have a wish list of things you'd like to see Lombardo at least embrace sports wise and maybe not have tax money go toward it, but at least be strongly in the corner of progress for certain sports, whether that is jumping behind the NBA as the number one option, not Major League Baseball, or vice versa, or embracing MLS, like, hey, that's the sport that needs to come here, or, hey, you know what, I like uh, Arena 2 Project at Wet n' Wild over Arena 1 Project. Um, I'm more into Jackie Robinson, a local, uh, being you know the, uh, the chief person in an arena. Do you have anything that you'd like to see Lombardo embrace moving forward sports-wise starting in 2023? Yeah, still still grating my gears here a little bit as uh, I try to get behind this idea that uh, that we're basing this on. But 
Yeah. Uh, understand that if we're going to talk about what a governor is going to do in terms of sports in Las Vegas, anything that's going to happen is going to be either continuing what's there or moving backward. Uh, because you can't find a politician who has been more in on the idea of pro sports than than Sisolak was. And when yeah. it came to public money for the, for the A's stadium, I think that that's a lar- in large part to make clear that we're not going to be used as a negotiating tool for the city of Oakland to get something done up there, right? There's there's not going to be that assumption that was out there about the Raiders that, yeah, they'll just figure out a way to, to get some public money behind things. And again, understand that if, if the new governor uh, is not Steve Sisolak and it is Joe Lombardo, uh, tax money is going to be a lot harder to come by than it was. By the way, I'm not limiting my last question to pro sports. Just anything sports-related, athletics-related in Las Vegas, whether it's Sisolak or Lombardo, because my wish list would include the governor to actually get behind UNLV athletics and the governor to actually be a vocal part of a push for a Power 5 conference to invite UNLV. And whether it's Lombardo or Sisolak, since both cut their teeth here in Southern Nevada, I feel like it's kind of owed. Am I skewed in my thinking? All I can think about when you say that is to, that that beautiful creation that Steve Sisolak wore, that brown khaki hat that is straight out of the Cofield collection. Oh, my God. That yep. brown khaki hat. Worst thing ever. Both logos on it. Yep. The Nevada logo and the UNLV logo. Yep. Yes, yeah, Sure. They might be willing to get behind one university, but not at the expense of the other because well, much like Michael Jordan said with sneakers, yeah, everyone votes. Here's the thing. There's a reality to the situation, and we can build on this. Las Vegas is a much bigger city and and realistically has a chance to get its school into a Power Five. Reno is the smaller city, has no shot to get its school into a Power Five. And other, other governors have had to make this decision, Candy, right? Oklahoma ain't the Big 12 anymore, is it? So at the time, the politicians had to make a decision. Do we make Oklahoma and Oklahoma State stick together, or are we cool separating them? Oregon may have that decision coming up. California is going to vote on letting UCLA basically out of the UC system from a sports standpoint and having it go to the Big Ten. So we're dealing with big boy issues here and big money issues here. I want to build on this throughout the show because I do believe the governor can also do a lot for the funding at Nevada, it sucks. Nevada is now falling behind. We're going to talk a little Nevada football in the middle hour with one of the guys from Nevada Sportsnet, the way Nevada has been treated by politicians when it comes to sports and money has sucked. And guess what? Both schools were here well before the Knights, the Raiders, the soon-to-be NBA LeBrons, MLS, the A's, whoever it is. How about we treat the folks who have been here a little nicer, back them up, and get him some friggin' money. Want the skinny on UNLV football? Listen to the weekly UNLV All Access podcast with Cofield and Caleb Herring. A new episode drops each Thursday morning at UNLV All Access on Twitter. There's a lot to sink our teeth into here. They got a lot of good players on all three phases, I'd say. And then this is a team second in the division now, been in a ton of close games, had one tie and, and a bunch that were right there at the end where they could have won or lost them. So excited to obviously be back home after the trip down south, you know, and, and get back home and, and uh, really get ready for this one. 
hanging at the Battleborn Broadcast Center. It's Cofield and Company. All right, rolling on here as we kick off a Wednesday show. Cofield, reminding you, Kevin Kruger Radio Show tonight, Raider Nation Radio, 920. 5 o'clock start. Kevin Kruger Radio Show, head coach of uh, UNLV Basketball, 5 o'clock on Raider Nation Radio, 920. Let's talk coaching. Let's talk to a guy who coached for a long time, NFL head coach and college football head coach, and played the game and worked on a lot of stats around the National Football League. He's the analyst for the Colts. It's Rick Venturi, who's up with Steve and Candy. How are you, sir? Hey, I'm doing good. Uh, you know, the Colts are, are never, never dull, no matter what, no matter what day of week it is. So we've <laughs> been, been very, very busy this week, to put it mildly. Yeah, I was going to ask you, uh, like, it's Armageddon here the last couple of weeks with all the sports stuff going on, but especially the Raiders' slow start. But we don't hold a candle to what's happened the last <laughs> couple of weeks. So, all right, we're a couple of days into this giant news that Reich is gone and Saturday, yeah. who hadn't coached anywhere before, is the head coach. So g- give me give me the public's reaction first, and then I want your reaction. Well, it, it's it's pretty interesting. You know, Frank Reich had a lot of success here early. You know, he's very he was very highly regarded locally in the locker room in the building. Uh, we hit the high water mark with Frank on Christmas Day with the big win. You'll remember at the prime time last second win on Christmas Day at Arizona to go nine and six you know, and to be in the driver's seat, really, to go forward. And then we had the two bad meltdowns. The the last game in Jacksonville was unbearable. Then we come out this season. We make a lot of off-season moves. We get Matt Ryan. Everything looks, you know, arrow up. And, uh, you know, we tie Houston and lose to Jacksonville in the first two, you know, perceived big wins. And then I think the biggest thing is that he was never able to catch up with Tennessee. And, you know, Jim Irsay has mandated that they get back to winning NFC, AFC South. It never happened. And then Sunday, you know, Sunday, and, and I've always believed this, and I know it's happened to me myself in my, in my own career, is there is that one game, there is that one bad moment that just supersedes them all, and that was a humiliating you know, humiliating game, a demoralizing game in New England on Sunday. And so to me, when I walked out of there with my experience, I knew it was not if anymore, it was when Frank would be done. Now, it is always stunning when you do it in the middle of the season, you know, like they did, and you're 3-5-1. and one. It's not like, you know, it's not like right, you're right, out of right, it. Right. But um, I think even more shocking was the fact that, you know, they, they passed over guys like Gus Bradley, who were head coaches, and John Fox, um, and, you know, brought in Jeff Saturday. It's it's a little understandable if you know the culture here. Jim really lives in the early 2000s, you know, the, the, the teams that put Indianapolis on the football map. You know, I call it the Manning era, the Manning Mafia, so to speak. And, you know, it, it wasn't – it's not anything he can do to recapture that area era he is going to do. And, you know, he's had a relationship with Saturday over the years. Saturday spends a lot of time here, has consulted at different times. And so, you know, he, he made the move. Obviously, we know it's totally unknown. The guy has literally no coaching experience. Uh, but in that regard, you know, I, I think on a short-term basis, uh, you know, coming in as a head coach and having a, a, your staff in place, I, I think you can make that transition because what you're really doing is you're managing people, 
you're trying to bring juice to a program that for some reason has just gotten stale. It's just gotten, you know, where there's almost, there's almost an apathy here. And uh, obviously the move, when you ask me about how it's been received, and I think Jim knew this, this was going to be very well received. People were really down on Frank. It's, it's amazing wow. to decline, really down on him community-wise. And, of course, Indianapolis lives in that great era of that 2000 to 2012, and they live in it, and, they, and basically bringing a guy like Saturday, who's very popular, you know, here, um, initially is, you know, initially is a big thing. It's, it's very, very well recepted. Of course, all that stuff doesn't matter, as we know, once you play a game yep. and once you play the game. So, you know, we'll see. It'll be on display. I think the interesting thing is he, he makes Park Frazier, who's really been a graduate assistant, so to speak, as the offensive play caller for Sunday. Now, I like the idea that he was decisive, and he named somebody because they're shorthanded. They just fired the offensive coordinator a week before. So this will be interesting. In some respects, I think Parks has a much more difficult job, and I've done both of them. To step in as a coordinator, I think, is, is, is much difficult, more difficult than to step in as a head coach because a head coach – in the course of a game, may, may may have to make five decisions. A coordinator makes between 50 and 70 in all, in all 10 seconds uh, segments. So we'll, we, you'll see an unknown on Sunday. We'll see what happens out there. And Rick, that brings up a really curious question because not only does he step into a situation where he's going to have to be making these 50-plus decisions, he's going to be doing so with a quarterback making his third NFL start in Sam Ellinger, who we really don't know a whole lot about. So, I mean, what should we expect that this playbook is going to be about two pages long when it comes to the Colts this week? Because it feels like you have a lot of variables involved here. Are they going to try to keep it simple, or, or what do you expect out of them at all? Well, you know, I, I, I don't think they'll really keep it simple. You know, I think, first of all, as assistant quarterback coach, that was his uh, that was his title. He did work a lot with um, Ellinger, both as a rookie last year and early season when he was a backup guy. So there's a real relationship with him. Ellinger is a really smart guy, and he's been in the offense. You really don't have to reduce it for him. He's a very very smart guy. What you do is you add certain elements with him. He's a very, very good athlete, uh, you know, a lot like Tannehill to me. He can, he can make throws. He doesn't have a gun, but he's very, very accurate, and he's gotten better. But he's also a guy that you can roll with, uh, you can boot with, you can run the zone reads, and I, I'd actually like to see them run a lot more. I think they could put a lot more pressure on the defense if they open it up for him in that respect. And so I don't, I don't think it's a reduction. I just think it's a different kind of game simply because of his movement and ability to move. Now, we've had so much trouble. I mean, Belichick just took him to school, and I worked for Bill for two years, and I saw it coming. Uh, he just took him to school in terms of pass protection. He just, you know, and that's been a real issue. Ball security... Uh, turnovers and sacks. It's just been so unlike Colt teams in the past. It's just it's just been awful, and it's really led to the demise. And you mentioned the turnovers and sacks, Rick, and, and you talk about what's been going on with the offensive line. That was expected to be a yes. strength as it has been for the Colts for many, many years. Uh, what's going on there? 
Well, it's 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 interesting. It's it's hard to define totally. Um, you know, uh, it's the implosion of Matt Ryan is just absolutely startling to me. I still have trouble coming to grips with it. You know, when they took him out, he had nine interceptions and 11 fumbles. Now he lost three, only lost three, but he had 11 fumbles. Now, I think it starts with you have one of the best running backs, arguably Jacobs, him, Henry. You can argue those guys are the best in the league, and he can't make an inch. We haven't been able to run the ball at all. And so what has happened is we've created all these negative or uh, what I call disadvantage situations, second and ten, you know, then third and eight, and it's just rolled downhill, and our line has been underproductive. They thought they could go with Pryor at left tackle, and he was a total disaster. They moved him to right tackle, and then last week at right guard, he, I, I have to laugh. I don't mind. I want to poke fun at him, but he's been fired at three different positions here in nine games. So they're playing a rookie at right guard. Now they had to go with the rookie, and now they've got a rookie at left tackle who's probably not ready to play. But worse than that, Nelson, Kelly, and Brandon Smith, who we expected. This is a $40 million offensive line. Now this is the most highest-paid line in the league, have been really underproductive. And, you know, what? You know maybe Jeff, because that was his mantra, maybe he can shake that up a little bit because – you're exactly right. I mean, that is the biggest, I would say that and Matt Ryan were the biggest disappointments. Because I, I tell you what, if you'd have told me that we would be in this situation on August 25th, I'd, I'd have said, you're a heretic. This is a, <laughs> this, this is a, this, the, you know, this is a contender here. And so I guess I'm a little bit culpable too, because I saw it and I believed it in, I still, I, I still actually think we're better than we've played the last three weeks, but you know, that remains to be seen. One of the voices of the Colts, Rick Venturi, of course, uh, of course, in the past, coached the Colts, coached at Northwestern, up with Cofield and company. Colts getting ready to take on the Raiders. Back to Jeff Saturday for a second. You mentioned, yeah, you may have uh, six, eight, ten, you know, big decisions to make. What's the most difficult part in this first game? Making those decisions or just getting the buy-in from the players that he's a legit leader? I think there's four things, and you know, I've been an interim head coach twice. I mean, I've been at the Colts in 91 and the Saints in 96. I certainly did a better job the second time because I, you know, despite the record, records hardly mean anything with interim coaches. You take over terrible situations. But I learned some things along the way, and, and I would say there's there's basically four things that he really has to do. First thing is, he, you know, the very first thing is he's got to come in and fill the leadership vacuums, and I think he'll do that right off the bat. He's got to become the leader. There, there's no Frank Reich, you know, bashing or anything, and he doesn't have time to wait on that. He has to do that today. Today is his first meeting with the team, and if, if, it, if it, even if it means a few minor changes just to give the illusion that this is a different program. But he has to fill the vacuum, get in front of everybody. He is the boss right now. There's no working your way in. Number two, and this is very important, he's got to sell that staff that if they all pull together, because there's going to be resentment. Now, you brought a guy in, and you passed over guys there. So nobody's going to admit to that, but there's going to be resentment. So your job is to get that staff together. You've got to get them together and convince them that if they play well together and they live together and they win, it's going to be better for everyone. Then number three, you've got to convince that team on why you're going to get better. And it's not kissing babies. It's not ESPN sound bites. You've got to get in there 
and pro players respond to coaches who put them in the best position to win. They don't respond to pep talks, PowerPoints, all that stuff. So he has got to get up there and say, okay, we're going to get better because we are going to do this, we're going to do that, we're going to do that. And that's the way you sell them. And then I would say, number four, stay in your lane. He's, he's hired because of his legacy in the past. He, he has perceived leadership skills, and that's why he's here. And so, to me, that's what he has to do. He can't get in Gus Bradley's way on defense. He's not going to become Bill Walsh tomorrow or Buddy Ryan on defense, X and O wise. There's no way possible. He hasn't. He doesn't have that kind of background that he learned this craft. But he has natural leadership skills. So again, let the good coaches like Bubba Ventrone on special teams. He has redefined the offensive staff. I like that. That was decisive. Whether you agree with who he gave the job to, I just like the fact that it's decisive and you go for there. But that's the big four. Rick, I got one more, and I got only about a minute left. Uh, you know Jim Irsay as well as anyone. So from the outside, we look at this and we're like, this guy's crazy. He, he's, he's crazy. And then, you know, then he's throwing out, like, I want guys who aren't afraid and you know, aren't going to turn to analytics. In a minute, I know it's not a lot of time to you know tell us about yeah. a guy, but tell us what is Ursay like to to work for that you know people outside the market don't know. Well, first of all, he's eccentric, so he's going to come off in certain situations a little bit different than most guys. But keep in mind this: he is a football guy. Okay, he is maybe the best football guy in the National Football League. He's very smart. He's done this and done nothing else. He's not like his father who came into pro football. There's always a method to his madness. I think he has really, really good instincts. I think this season has absolutely driven him nuts since the, like I said, since Christmas Day. I think he's been nuts, and he's basically been on the rampage, and he has high standards for this program. You know, the last two coaches fired here both had winning records overall. But he, again, he's eccentric, so at times... He will come off, and he won't always come off good in terms of the delivery, but he's a lot sharper than people think. Rick Yank, thank you so much. That was awesome knowledge. Appreciate it, and uh, enjoy the game coming up. All right. We'll see you guys out there Sunday. Yeah, see you out there. Rick Venturi, Colts are in town to take on the Raiders. Rick, of course, as you mentioned multiple times there, interim head coach on multiple occasions in the National Football League, coach at Northwestern, coach the uh, Colts and the Saints as well, and was a longtime assistant around the NFL. Join Cofield and Company on Fridays for the 3 to 6 show at the Golden Circle Sportsbook and Bar. There's nothing like a football Friday at Treasure Island. Bird comes right side, throws it out top to Lyons. It's deflected and stolen by Harkless. Up ahead to Rodriguez for the slam dunk. Defense into offense, exactly what the coaches want to see. Now, back to Cofield and Company at the Battleborn Broadcast Center on ESPN Las Vegas. John Sandler on the call there. We'll get to the Run Rebels and their victory and look ahead to uh, next game, which is on Saturday against Incarnate Word. So they're out to a 1-0 start. Adam Candy is the company. It's Cofield. Uh, real quick, Adam, I wanted to follow up on what Rick Venturi just told us. One, this is why we have the local experts on, especially guys who are former head coaches, because he's got a lot of perspective on this whole story. I was shocked. Did you realize that, that the Colts public is really fired up to have Jeff Saturday around? Seriously? Can't say I knew it, but I can't say I'm shocked either, because 
are, do we not live in a city with at least one fan base that likes to remember the glory days with UNLV basketball? Uh, we, yeah. We've done it before. So when you go back and dig into that era, then sure, I think you get some fans who might be excited about that when they've been watching some ugly football this year. And then his comments on Jim Ursay, football guy, very smart, eccentric, good instincts. Your thoughts? I think everything we've watched with the Colts the last five years has been about being impatient and trying to nail it with your instincts. Because look at what this franchise has done at quarterback. After Andrew Luck, from Jacoby Brissett to Phillip Rivers to Carson Wentz to Matt Ryan to Sam Ellinger, that's just the last few years. None of them have lasted more than a year. So Indianapolis has been trying to find that needle in a haystack for a while by saying, hey, someone in the building has the instincts to get this right. And the way that Rick Venturi says it, I would say it probably starts the top. Man, if the Raiders can't beat, I mean, the Raiders are a blank show too, but if the Raiders can't beat this level blank show, lordy. Well, you can party hardy or drown your sorrows after the game on Sunday with another silver and black after party at Crazy Horse 3. Devon will be out there hosting the party, 5 to 8. We've got a couple of VIP packs to get in. You'll get a free entry for yourself and your friends, a table. You got either a bucket or a bottle. We'll do caller 7 and 8 here for Crazy Horse 3, silver and black after party. It's right across the street from the stadium. If you don't win, you just go over there with a ticket or local ID and you get in for Free. Caller 78-364-1100-364-1100. And if you want to be really nice, they're doing a canned food drive at Crazy Horse 3. It's benefiting the Angels of Las Vegas. Starts up on Thursday, goes through the last Wednesday of this month, November 30th. You bring in three cans of perishable, non-perishable uh, items, and you'll get a free cocktail. Crazy Horse 3, best place to hang out and party after the Raiders games. 364-1100. You're in as a VIP. Caller 78 Join Cofield and Company on Thursdays for the live 2-5 to five show at Silver 7's Hotel and Casino. During all NFL games this season, get 77-cent beers. It's Thursday Night Football at Silver 7's Flamingo in Paradise. Former UNLV quarterback and current voice of the Rebels on radio, Caleb Herring is live right now on Cofield and Company. All right, let's break down a little UNLV football. Rebels now 4-5, and five, now in a position. Hey, it's better than last year, right? Where they have to win 2 of 3 to make a bowl game. But that whole comment right there, hey, it's better than last year. Mm, not good enough. Not good enough. Caleb's up with us. Caleb, how you doing, buddy? Oh, I'm doing good, Steve. How you guys doing? I'm good. I'm good. You know, I, on the coach's show yesterday, I said something to Marcus Arroyo, and, and he took it well. Other coaches, I think, could have said, why don't you shut the hell up? Um, I wanted to play this for you just in terms of where I think fans are and the market is with UNLV football, and it needs to stop. And uh, and it certainly can't seep into the mentality of the team. Give a listen to this. I felt like last year in a lot of the close games, not that you gave this message, but where the program was, it was like, hey, good job, good effort. You were in these games. You know, it would have been awesome to win some of those games eight points or less. But for the San Diego State game, I look at that, and I assume you do, and the players, like, that's a winnable game. That's a chance to take down one of the giants of the conference. You're out gaining them for most of the game. You've got to win mm. that game. And I assume the players get that, that there's no more good job, good effort. Caleb, am I right on that? The good job, good effort days 
are done. And the San Diego State loss, it's bad. You should have won that game. Absolutely. And I think that's the difference between good, like really good teams, winning teams, and teams that are almost there. That can't be the attitude. What you're talking about, the good effort and a loss, that can't be acceptable anymore. Like, it's not okay to, if you lose at this point, and I think you know he's there. If you lose at this point in your program, it's not good. There can be a, there, you can't have a good effort and a loss anymore. Those are things that you hold your hat on and look for improvements and, you know, you're building towards something. I think UNLV should feel like they're in a position where the only acceptable or, or good outcome is a W. Um, and that's even if, you know, W's may come ugly, but that's still acceptable because the primary goal now is winning, not improving, not figuring out what it takes to win or figuring out how to not lose games, which is what they've been doing over the last few weeks, especially in that San Diego State game, which is they lost the game. The, it, them losing or winning the outcome didn't have anything to do with the opponent in that game. San Diego State couldn't stop their offense for most of the second half, and UNLV defensively owned San Diego State for the second half. Um, so they, they they were the better team on on you know the, based on the results going into the games, yards and, and things like that. Yep. But they did things to themselves that caused them to lose. You're, you're on the, the you're on the doorstep, Caleb. Twice you throw an interception in the end zone. You have cover you have coverage issues. I want to play three highlights here. We're gonna we'll play them uh, you know all separate here. And I want you to break down the play because Caleb does such a good job in game. I'm not sure everyone during the week gets to hear what he's saying about the plays. But yeah, we understand Doug Brumfield was rusty, you know, coming off a concussion. But if he's in there, he's got to make these plays. So here's interception number one in the end zone. Now back to throw Brumfield. He wants the end zone. The pass is intercepted by San Diego State. The intended receiver. So intended receiver is Kyle Williams. That throw wasn't great. When I asked Arroyo yesterday about, hey, is that throw supposed to go to the corner? Because it essentially was too far up in the end zone. It was more of a jump ball opportunity. Uh, Kyle Williams with an ankle is not going to win a jump ball right now. So that all said, what was supposed to happen on that play? Where was Brumfield supposed to go? Well, to give the play some context, that play was called to be a shot play, right? You got to give it the previous play. They just completed a corner route for a first down, getting the ball into the red zone to Ricky White on the previous play. They're going kind of up tempo, not really no huddle, not, you know, two minute pace, but they're going kind of up pace, getting a rhythm offensively there. So you call that first down play action pass. Um, out of a three by one, you got Ricky White by himself to the bottom of the field. Um, you got uh, you got Kyle up top, who was the intended receiver, the number one on the outside of the trips with with Zeon and um, and Nick Williams on the inside of him. You're going play action verticals there. You're trying to get Nick Williams on the over route, which is something that they run a lot out of the play action. Um, they kind of create that high low, but calling it there where you call it, you're anticipating or thinking shot play. Let's go get it right now. We got some momentum. Let's take it. San Diego State wasn't caught off guard. The play action didn't fool them. The secondary stayed deep, well over the top of the route. It's just a simple go route by number three outside, which is a long throw coming from the far hash, throwing it across the field and about 30 yards down the field. It's a tough throw for anybody to make. NFL quarterbacks have a hard time throwing that deep ball. Um, so Doug's trying to give a guy a chance. That ball can only be put outside and away. So it's it's got to be either us or nobody ball where it either lands out of bounds or – Kyle goes up and makes a great catch, which, like you mentioned, he's not going to be able to be as athletic or as um, vertical as he would be if he was 100%. What should have probably happened, uh, based on the way that San Diego State covered that, is you go to the one-on-one side with Ricky White. And usually that route is tagged as a comeback in that formation. We've seen it numerous times this year. 
um, out of UNLV where Ricky out for that play action, that same play action with the vertical concepts. He has a comeback uh, and he's working one on one against his defender into the boundary. I'd rather take my chances with that matchup. Ricky White against press coverage, running a comeback into the boundary, nice shorter throw. Um, and if it's not there, it's easier to throw that one away right over Ricky's head. Um, I think that maybe should have been the decision. But again, you have to get into the mindset right. where Doug was at that point. He'd completed a couple of nice passes in a row. He's feeling himself. The offense is moving and he's going for the for the home run ball. And that is just a, a momentary lapse in judgment. I think that lets him throw that ball up for grabs like that. And it, listen, it's not what you haven't seen guys come down with those 50-50 balls earlier this year. It actually was a big part of the offense early in the year, the 50-50 ball, but just not the right time to put that ball up in jeopardy like that in your own end zone or in the end zone. Here's INT number two in traffic in the end zone. Third and goal from the 12. Brumfield back to throw. Heavy pressure. Steps up. Throwing for the end zone. And the pass is intercepted by San Diego State. Oh, my goodness. Double coverage. He tried to hit Nick Williams. And Dallas Branch picked him off. Caleb, what did you see on that play? And so this one was one of those concepts that UNLV has run in the red zone that I think is one of the, the more effective, more advanced concepts. They're running bunch to one side, which were Nick Williams and Shelton Zion and Kyle Williams are lined up in a bunch formation on the right side. Um, they kind of explode out of the formation with Nick Williams running a deep over route. His aiming point is the back corner of the opposite side of the end zone. Um, and that creates the top part of the high level read. Now, Ricky White is, again, soloed up by himself. He's running what we call a whip route. He's running a slant and back out. Now, that's intended to hold any defender that's to that wide side of the field which by himself. The high-low becomes on that corner that's guarding Ricky White. If he stays glued to Ricky White, then you should have the back corner of the end zone open with Nick Williams coming all the way across the formation, making a catch in the back corner. So it, it ends up looking like a smash or a corner and a hitch concept. Um, but it's just an exotic way to get to that same high-low read. And like I said, they've run it before, and they've run it effectively, um, and the, the corner didn't fall off quite as effectively as San Diego State did, but heads up to him for falling off. And again, there's options in this play. Ricky White, obviously, if the corner's falling off, sinking off of Ricky and making the play underneath the deep over route, then you've got to take the underneath route, let Ricky try to run for it. I think it was third and goal to go there. Get him the ball with space and let him try to run from it, uh, run for it. But again, the eyes got big, I think, a little bit impatient, and again, going to the previous play before that, uh, Doug also had an opportunity to pitch it to Aiden Robbins um, on a speed option where Aiden, I think, may have walked into the end zone. But Doug decided to fake the pitch and keep it. And it's just a case of the decision making. His eyes getting big and wanting to be the one to make the play in his first game back in a few weeks. He's feeling the momentum of the game yep. and then just trying to make a big play for his team. And I think right. the simple play was the right play in both of those situations. And there's nothing wrong with breaking this down like this. And that was my point. You know, bringing in the the critical comment earlier, you can be mad after a loss like this. And you know what, Doug Brumfield has a lot of responsibility. When you're a quarterback, you just can't make mistakes like that. Now he made a very impressive throw. It was across the field. He had eluded the pocket, 70-yarder, you know, catch and run by Nick Williams. That was a great throw. Um, so he had many positives in the game. And by the way, tonight we do another one of our UNLV All Access podcast, Caleb and myself, and we'll break down more of the plays and kind of feature Caleb in the deep dive stuff before we get you out of here. Cause we got about three minutes left. I want to talk about the Fresno offense because man, mm. it's back. Jake Hayner knows this offense. He gets the ball out quick, not saying he's Tua, but the offense kind of runs like that at times because they've got this bevy of receivers starting with Moreno Cropper and then Nico Romeo where they're crossing all over the field this much, uh, much, 
speak. This must be such a fun offense for the quarterback. A hundred percent. And that's what I think about because it, it's they simplify things to the degree, but they keep so many options available because all of their receivers are threats. Um, and we've seen that as UNLV's played them. It seems like they've been there forever with Moreno Cropper, especially he's had big games against UNLV. Um, and Romeo also has had a big game. He had the game winner against San Diego State. He's a, he's a problem with the ball in his hands. They do a good job of making it simple and just getting those guys in space, going empty a lot, spread formations, a little bit of tempo mixed in, and really getting rid of the ball quick, which I think is one of the strengths of Jake Hayner's game is from snap to delivery. He's one of the quicker that I've seen. Just watching him, I don't have the stopwatch, but he has a, a very good understanding of when and where to go with the ball and how to get rid of it quickly, and that helps the receivers. I think they get the ball with the most space and separation around them so they can make guys miss in the open field. They also do a fantastic job with the wide receiver screen game, getting the offensive line out there on the edges just to pick up a couple of blitzes to give them some extra yardage, and they'll nickel and dime you all the way down the field, and then all of a sudden, one of those little short out routes or short hitch routes turns into a 30-, 40-yard game, which you saw um, in the game winner against San Diego State. It was just a simple five-yard hitch route. One guy misses, and it's Katie bar the door. Um, and they do it. They use their offensive speed with the passing game to counteract the pressure that they give up. 36 pressures for San Diego State um, in that game. is the game I go back to, the last common opponent. Um, but 36 pressures San Diego State was able to create. But their counter to that is getting rid of the ball quicker, and Hayner understands that. Um, so it's a potent passing attack, and it, it requires that you tackle in space which their receivers are just great at eluding people in space. So it's going to be a challenge, as it has been for everybody who's who's faced the Hainer-led Fresno State offense. You saw 50-plus pass attempts, 300-plus yards, and a couple games in a row and a comeback effort. So it's, it's back. The Fresno State offense is back. It's every bit as good as we thought it would be before the season. And unfortunately for the Rebels, they're peaking at the right time. And it's, it's going to be a tough test at Allegiant trying to contain those guys on the edges. Caleb, I'll talk to you tonight, okay? Thank you. All right, guys, have a good one. There he is, Caleb Herring, the former Rebel quarterback on the broadcast on radio, also one of the co-hosts of the Marcus Arroyo radio shows. And again, to the point, Candy, I made starting out this block about needing to win games like this. And I know you wanted to bring up the point after San Diego State drops a punt and sets you up with beautiful field position. I know Brumfield had just thrown an interception but there wasn't a whole lot of aggression to freaking drop the hammer on the Aztecs at that point. No, that sequence ends up going run, run, screen, field goal. Now, I'll work backward from the field goal. You know I'm not going to like the field goal call. But at the same time, I understand that Marcus Arroyo looked at the clock and thought there's a lot of time left. We'll be able to get the ball back and do something. It's fine. You still go from needing a touchdown to needing a touchdown in that spot. But more importantly... When it comes down to it for this UNLV team, what have we said all year? What have we talked about with the injury to Doug Brumfield? That he is the engine of this team. And win or lose, it's going to go through Doug Brumfield. And so if you truly believe that he's your guy, that he's the guy who's going to be the linchpin of your team, especially when you're going well like they were early in the year, then I think you have to keep the ball in Doug Brumfield's hands, even if you don't like those decisions. You need to put Doug Brumfield in a position to succeed, not to say, okay, well, you made a couple of rough decisions here. We're going to go conservative and just try not to lose the game because that's, to me, what it looked like. It looked to me like trying not to lose the game versus going to win it. Rebels are back this Friday, short week, winnable game against a really good team. Super talented team in the pick before the season to win the West in the Mountain West Conference. That's Fresno State. The UNLV Football Pantry. 
and the football program coming together for a food drive for Thanksgiving. First 100 fans to drop off donations of non-perishable items, and Lot C will receive a $10 gift card that can be used towards Rebel Gear at Raider Image Merchandise. Locations Lot C, Lot C, Lot C. Bring the cans out to the game this Friday.